Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 18, verses 1 through 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Tidius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things and he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me open this with a word of prayer. Jesus, we delight that you are present among us and that you've spoken clearly through your word. And we can know you, we can trust in your promises, and we can enter into the very presence of the living God by your blood, by faith in you. This morning, may you speak, may we have ears to hear. We ask this by your grace and your mercy. Amen. One of my favorite poems, I'm not a huge poetry guy, I do enjoy reading a poem every now and then. One of my favorite poems is actually by the Jesuit priest Gerald Manley Hopkins, and it's called The Wreck of the Deutschland. Uh, he wrote it in 1875 to commemorate the drowning of five nuns whose ship uh, went aground off the coast of England. And it's interesting, he was a poet before he became a priest, and when he entered the priesthood, he felt like he needed to give up his vocation of writing poetry. And so for seven years, this man who had an amazing poetic gift didn't write anything, and then after this event, this was the first poem he wrote 
uh, as he began to write poetry again. And he begins, it's quite a long poem, but he begins it with this incredible, incredibly beautiful prayer that I want to read for us. This is how he begins. He says, Thou mastering me, God, giver of breath and bread, world's strand, sway of the sea, Lord of living and dead. Thou hast bound bones and veins in me, fastened me flesh, and after it almost unmade what with dread thy doing. And dost thou touch me afresh, over again I feel thy finger and find thee. It's that last line that's always stuck with me. Over again, I feel thy finger and find thee. And it's because of what he, he doesn't say. He doesn't say, over again, I see thy face. Or over even in a, kind of an Elijah experience of God's presence. Over again, I, I see the back of your face. He doesn't even say, over again, I feel thy hand. It's just thy finger. Because to be honest, in this world, a world that's marred by sin, that's ruled by the prince of this world, that's, that's oftentimes how our pilgrimage feels. We just sense Christ's finger. We get a, a hint of the presence of God, a passing sense of his presence with us. Jesus' work is easy to miss. It's easy to overlook. It's easy to explain away as coincidences. But here's a fact of the matter is that Jesus is at work in both hidden ways and in obvious ways. The same Jesus we see accomplishing things in the book of Acts is the same Jesus that is present with us this morning, that is present in your life throughout the week. He's the same Jesus who is advancing his kingdom today. And as we go through Acts, something you should know, the, the title of Acts is just that one word, Acts. And traditionally, Christians have seen it as a shortened version of maybe the Acts of the Apostles, which makes sense because it's telling the story of the earliest Christians, what they did, their actions. But theologically, a better title would be, this is the Acts of the risen Jesus Christ. Because remember, Acts is the second part of a longer work of Luke and Acts. It's a two-part series. And in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is obviously the main character. No one questions that. I mean, it's all about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. But you get to Acts, and it's like, oh, well, now it's about these guys like Peter and Paul and the great things they did, but that's not true. It's still about what Jesus was accomplishing. Because remember, way back to Acts chapter 1, or Acts chapter 2, Jesus sends his spirit on Christians and so now he's present by his spirit. And the story of Acts is still the story of Jesus and what he is doing. And that same Jesus is still active and present among us today. And the thing that's interesting, though, is that even in the book of Acts, which, again, if you want to talk about miraculous Christianity, there's so much miraculous and obvious that Jesus is doing in Acts. That even in Acts, still, sometimes, Jesus' work is hidden. Oftentimes, it's just that hint of Christ that we get. And that's what's true for Acts and it's true for us. So this is going to be our outline for us this morning. And oh, that we would have faith to see where Jesus is at work. The first point is the hidden acts of Jesus. The second point is the obvious acts of Jesus. And the third point is the hidden acts of Jesus again. So first point, hidden acts of Jesus. Now let's have a quick recap. Paul's on his second missionary journey. Uh, I have a map for us. I mentioned last time that I, I designed this map. I want to be clear. I didn't design the map. I did the, the red line. So again, 
I have a lot of giftings and, 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 you know, and that sort of thing, so you're welcome. But uh, Paul began uh, in northern Greece, what's, Ma- what's called Macedonia. He had a very contentious beginning. The first three cities he was in led to uproars. He was beaten in one. He had to flee the other two. And finally, as he leaves Berea, his brothers and sisters in Christ, for his own safety, remove him from the province of Macedonia and take him all the way south to Athens. And there they leave him there alone. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. As he's in Athens waiting, he begins to engage with the Athenians. And we saw how he, he first connected with the Athenians. He, he, he sought to understand them well enough to speak in ways that made sense to him. And then he also confronted them with the gospel. Um, and while a couple believed the sense at the end of his time in Athens that it was not a particularly fruitful ministry, And that's where we pick up in chapter 18. Let me read verses 1 to 4 for us again. After this, Paul left Athens and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and he worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, it's interesting. We don't know why he goes to Corinth. It doesn't tell us. But we actually do know what his emotional and mental state was when he came to Corinth. Because he tells the Corinthians that in his first letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he describes his first coming. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. As Paul comes to Corinth, he's afraid. He's trembling. He's in weakness. Now, why was that his internal state as he comes to Corinth? It would make sense when he came to Athens that that would have been his feeling because he literally fled for his life from two cities, and in the third city, he got beaten. And while Athens wasn't a particularly fruitful ministry, There doesn't seem to have been a whole lot of drama either. He wasn't arrested. He was allowed to leave. So why is Paul afraid as he comes to to Corinth? Paul, of all people. And the answer is most likely because of what Corinth was. Corinth was an incredibly impressive city, and the Corinthians knew it. Corinth was the capital of the Achaean province. That means that they had political precedence, even over like in Athens. They were a politically important city. Population was around 250,000 people uh, before Louisville, you know, cheated and just added a bunch of land. Our population was about 300,000. It was a similar size to Louisville. And at that time, that would have been a mega metropolis. Uh, It was the home of the Isthmian Games. They're kind of like the Olympics. So every two years, you know, the wealthy from around the Roman Empire would go to Corinth. It was a destination city, in other words. And the Corinthians knew that they were an impressive city. We see this in the letters to the Corinthians, as Paul has to deal with the intellectual arrogance of the Corinthian Christians. It's kind of like when you think of New York City, okay? Uh, I've lived overseas. I can tell you, New York City is an internationally known city. Like in, in Europe, they'll know New York City, maybe Los Angeles, and then everything in between. And everyone knows about New York City. They want to go to New York City. And guess what? New Yorkers know that their city is impressive. They're very impressed with themselves. As Frank Sinatra was saying decades ago, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Only the best and the brightest 
can make it in New York City, and New Yorkers know that. That's why it's called New York, New York, a city so nice they named it twice. That's Corinth. And here's Paul, and he's going to have to come to them and tell them in no uncertain terms that God is not impressed and that all their accomplishments and all their achievements are meaningless, ultimately, and then unless they're willing to humbly repent, acknowledge their sin, and trust in a crucified Jewish man, there's no hope for salvation. In other words, Paul's coming, in some ways, to speak truth to power, and that's a scary thing for anyone, even an apostle Paul. Secondly, not only was Corinth an impressive city, it was a morally bankrupt city, and again, everybody knew that. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It had a reputation for just gross immorality. The the city was built on the side of a mountain overlooking the water, and at the top of that mountain was a famous temple to Aphrodite, who's the Greek goddess of love. And there were a thousand prostitutes who served in the temple during the day, and at night they would flood the city, selling themselves for the pleasure of anyone who would pay. It was such a morally bankrupt city that there was a, a verb that was made out of the name Corinth, Corinthiazomai, which in Greek means to commit immorality. They took the name of the city and they made it a verb. That's the reputation. And again, here comes Paul, and he's going to preach the cross, a new way of living that's centered around holiness and repentance and self-denial to a city that just wants to party and have fun. You know, it's interesting. In, in many ways, Paul would have been a much more logical fit in Athens, right? Paul's a brilliant mind. He's an intellectual. He not only knows the scriptures, but he can quote like pagan poets and pagan thinkers. Like Athens was his jam. Corinth, again, it's, it's like where you go to party. And Paul is a very serious man with a very serious gospel. And I imagine as he goes into Corinth, he just knows, he feels how like out of his element he is. And that he may not be the most natural person to reach Corinth. And it's very likely that these people are just going to run him out of town on a pole. And so Paul comes, and he comes feeling his weakness, feeling his fear. But again, this is not the acts of Paul. This is the acts of the risen Jesus Christ, who even through a very strange fit as Paul in Corinth is able to work what he wants to work and accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And he does that at first in a very hidden way. This is where we see the first way we see the hidden acts of Jesus or the hidden hand of Jesus is in whom Paul meets when he comes to Corinth. Look at verse two. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy and with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. We'll see more of Aquila and Priscilla in Acts, but they become one of Paul's closest friends, and not only that, dear co-laborers in the gospel. Paul will greet them multiple times in his letters. It is clear that they go on to be, again, some of his closest compatriots, And they stick with Paul to the end. Here is Paul. He's coming to a city. He is by himself. And he senses his weakness and his fear and his loneliness. And what a coincidence. What a coincidence. Here's this man who's a Jew, just like Paul was. He's a Christian Jew, just like Paul was. He just happened to be kicked out of Rome at the time that Paul was coming to Corinth 
And although him and his wife are from northern Turkey, he ends, somehow ends up in Greece. No, he somehow ends up in Corinth. By the way, there's 250,000 people in Corinth. How do they meet? Well, they both happen to be tent makers. What a happy state of events. So great when this works out like this. None of this is coincidental. This is the hidden hand of Jesus working behind the scenes to provide what Paul needed, which was co-laborers in the gospel. He needed fellow Christians. It's easy for us, again, especially because we live in, 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 in a culture where what's assumed to be normal is the natural, and so everything has a natural explanation, that we will say things like, wow, that's, that's a coincidence, or we'll at least think it, even if we don't say it. But there are no coincidences. This is the hidden hand of Christ. Again, from the outside, what is an... Okay, so Claudius was a Roman empire, emperor. He kicked out of Rome all the Jews, and probably the Christian Jews, probably because the Jews were, you know, envious of the Christian Jews and were causing trouble. What does an imperial edict have to do with Paul's need? Well, from the outside, Nothing. But this is Jesus' active work as sovereign king, sovereign over all. What is right, uh, Aquila learning to be a tent maker, probably as a child, probably because his dad was a tent maker, what does that possibly have to do with decades later when Paul's going to come to a city and desperately need Christian fellowship? Well, from the outside, nothing, but this is the hidden hand of Christ. This is the finger of Jesus. If we'll have eyes to see, we'll see that he is at work and active among us. Again, from, from the outside, they're coming to Corinth at the same time as Paul was just happy to coincidence, but it wasn't. Brothers and sisters, most of Jesus' work in our life will be of this kind of hidden sort. And even for Paul, again, we think Paul had so many miraculous events, he lived such an unusual life, but much of Paul's ministry was very ordinary as well. When he fled Thessalonica and Berea, he fled it in a very ordinary way, on his feet, Brothers and sisters, Jesus is far more at work in your life than you may realize, than you may see or others may see. There are no coincidences. There are no fortunate circumstances. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and he is at work in everything and through everything, and all things happen by his hand. And he works in these secret and hidden ways so that we learn to trust him, so that we learn to look for where he is at work. So this is the hidden acts of Jesus. <clears throat> Next we see the obvious acts of Jesus. Verses 5 to 11. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and they reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. And his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months. 
teaching the word of God among them. So finally, Paul's been waiting for Silas and Timothy, and they arrive. Before this, Paul had been a bivocational missionary. He was tent making during the week, and then on the synagogues, he'd go into, or sorry, on the Sabbath, he would go into the synagogues and reason with the Jews. And the way the ESV translates this, it, it obscures it a little bit, but the idea is when Silas and Timothy arrive, then Paul is freed to be able to devote his time to his missionary work. And the reason is because Silas and Timothy bring a financial gift from the churches in Macedonia. And again, we know this because Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Writing to the Corinthian Christians, he says, When I was with you and was in need, I didn't burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That's Silas and Timothy. And so Paul's freed up to spend all of his time reasoning with the Jews, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Jewish Messiah has come, he's born the sins of the world, there's new life in him, and after devoting all of his time, what are the results? Well, look at verse 6. And when they opposed and they reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent. In the end, after all of his labors, only one Jew converts. And it was a pretty notable person. It was a ruler of the synagogue, but one. And you got to put yourself in Paul's place. He's, he's just come from Athens. That was also very disappointing, despite his best efforts. He comes to Corinth, he gives his full time to this work, and, and one person of his fellow Jews responds. And so he decides to instead go to the Gentiles. And you can imagine Paul, he's afraid, he's discouraged. And so Jesus appears to him in a vision. This is the obvious acts of Jesus. This is the only time in our story where Jesus, by the way, is mentioned doing anything, yet he's present and active throughout the entire story. And in this vision, he gives Paul commandments and promises. The commands, look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid, but go on speaking. Don't be silent. First command he gives to Paul, don't be afraid. It's hard for us to imagine Paul being afraid, because the man had, was just, I mean, he just, you know, he, he spoke confidently before world rulers. You know, he, he, they, they could like stone him half to death, and he'd like drag himself back in the city. And yet Paul, I mean, Jesus wouldn't have to tell Paul, don't be afraid if Paul wasn't afraid. So Jesus encouraged Paul, you don't, you don't have to be afraid. And then second, he says, Paul, stay where you are. Again, Paul had a unique ministry. He wanted to take the gospel where it wasn't known. And so he would go to one place, stay there a month or two, and then leave. And so here he is, and it's not looking very fruitful. And you could see Paul thinking, well, maybe I need to go to the next city. But Jesus says, no, 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 Paul, you need to stay. But then Jesus also gives promises. He doesn't just give commands. He gives promises. And the first promise he gives, verse 10, I am with you. You know, the truth is Aquila and Priscilla, they were literally godsends to Paul. He was alone. He needed Christians. He needed fellowship. But yet Paul still needed to be reminded that he wasn't alone. And so Jesus does that. He literally shows up to him in a vision and says, Paul, I'm with you. Don't forget that. In the midst of this ministry that's not going how you thought it would, in the midst of the fear of what's going to happen, like, I am with you. Remember that. Second, he says that no one's going to be able to harm Paul. He says you're going to be attacked, but no one's going to be able to harm you. And to a man, again, who's been stoned and beaten with rods and literally fled multiple cities for his life, that's, that's a very assuring thing for Jesus to say. No one's going to be able to touch you. Trust me. And the third promise, 
is that the harvest in this city is going to be plentiful. There's many who are already my own. I've called them to myself. You just got to go find them. It's very similar to what Jesus prayed in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. He knows who are his and who are not his. And so he can tell Paul, Paul, there are many who are mine now. I'm calling them to myself. You're going to have a fruitful ministry. Stay. Don't go anywhere. And so Paul stays a year and a half. So long as he stays anywhere up to this point. He has a long and fruitful ministry. Now, I have two observations on the second point. The obvious acts of Jesus as Jesus speaks in a vision. First, again, while Jesus probably more often works in much more hidden and ordinary ways, that's been my experience, my reading of church history, is that that's the experience for most Christians as we pilgrimage through this life. But still, Christ can speak in very obvious ways too. He can speak in visions. He can speak in strong impressions where we know in the depths of our soul, Christ is telling me this. We don't want to be experienced junkies where we're like running from one emotional high to the next. We also don't want to be cynics as if Christ can't speak in ways that make it very clear that it is the living Lord himself speaking to us. But second observation is that Jesus always speaks very clearly in one particular way, and it's through his word. We have to remember, Paul didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament, and he had it memorized. Uh, but he didn't have, So he had many of the foreshadowings of the promise, but he didn't have any of the answers, any of the promises and the commands that Jesus himself made. In other words, Paul wasn't there on the mountain in Galilee when Jesus ascended into heaven, and he told his disciples, I will be with you to the end. You don't need to be afraid. Paul wasn't there. And so Jesus had to appear to him in a vision to tell him, hey, I'm going to be with you. I am with you, always. But you and I, we can go to Matthew 28, and we can read the promise that Jesus has made to you and to me that he will be with us forever. We can go to the scriptures and see that Jesus promised, I will build my church, and the gates of hell themselves will not overcome it. We can go to scriptures and we can see the promise that Jesus made that he is at work in every part of your life, all of it, for your good. Sometimes in this pilgrimage of life we're in, Jesus' ways can seem so hidden and so confusing, but in reality, he's never really hidden because he's spoken so clearly through his word. And we can always go to it and to hear afresh his words speaking to us and know his heart for us and his heart for the world and his promises and his commands. And we can rest in that. So again, we've seen the hidden acts of Jesus and Jesus sovereignly providing Aquila and Priscilla to Paul. We've seen the obvious acts of Jesus when he speaks in a vision. But here again, a third and final point, we're gonna see again the hidden acts of Jesus. Jesus, again, has made a promise to Paul that no one's going to be able to harm him. And the way that he fulfills that is, again, in a very hidden way, and it's through a Roman proconsul, a Roman governor of all people. Let's look at verses 12 to 17. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him before the tribunal. 
saying this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own laws, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. A little background information helpful to know to understand what the Jews are trying to do in the story is in the Roman Empire, Judaism had official recognized status. It was a recognized religion by the Roman Empire, and so they had freedom to operate and to practice. And for the first 30 to 50 years of the existence of Christianity, from the Roman perspective, it was just a, a, a sect of Judaism. It was a denomination within Judaism. And so it kind of benefited from the recognition that Judaism had in the Roman Empire. What the Jews are doing here is they're trying to go to the Roman proconsul, to Galileo, saying, no, 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 Christians, they are not Jews. This is not Judaism. This is a new religion. And as such, they shouldn't benefit from the same privileges and protections that Judaism had. And if this had worked, this would have been a very serious threat to Christians in Corinth because it would have robbed them of, again, legal protections and the legal right to meet openly and to be Christians and to worship and practice as Christians. But again, we see the unseen hand of Christ, the hidden acts of our Lord and Savior, first in the fact that Gallio was proconsul. Now, I know when I said Gallio, all of you said, oh, yes, Gallio, right. Well, when I say Abraham Lincoln, we all have a cultural understanding of who he was, what he was known for. Gallio was similar. He, was, he came from a, a, a well-known family. His brother was a senator. His other brother was a famous Stoic philosopher. His dad was a famous historian of the Roman Empire. Galileo was an impressive man, notable man, but he was known for being generous and tolerant as a leader. Not the kind of leader who would try to go after a new religious movement or who would feel the need to you know, exert his political might as many other governors of other cities had done to the detriment of Christians and to Paul. That's not who Gallio was. He was a very tolerant and generous ruler. And he was only at Corinth for two years. And he had to retire because he had health issues. Again, what a happy coincidence. Of all the Roman proconsuls you could have who might f- rule in favor of Christians, you have Gallio for the two years. He just happened to be there in the year and a half that Paul was there. Well, this is not a coincidence. This is, again, the unseen hand of Christ at work. Jesus is bringing this all to fruition to keep his promise to Paul that no one's going to be able to harm him. But the second way we see the unseen hand of Christ is the fact that Paul doesn't even have to defend himself. But Jesus so turns Gallio's heart in favor of the Christians. Again, in verse 14, it says, but when Paul was about to open his mouth... And you can imagine, you know, Paul's there. He's watching what the Jews are doing. He's knowing what this could mean for the church. And then all of a sudden, the Jews finish, and so Paul prepares to speak, and he's saying quick, frantic, urgent prayers, Jesus, help me. And he's about to open his mouth, and what happens? Gallio shuts him off and says, no, no, no. If this were a criminal matter, I'd care, but this is not a criminal matter. This is not a matter for the Roman Empire to be involved in. You guys figured it out on your own. Paul doesn't even have to open his mouth. Why? Because Jesus had promised him, no one's going to be able to harm you. And Jesus is always good to his promises. 
It's fascinating. Guys, Jesus' name is not mentioned once between verse 12 and verse 17. And yet this is Jesus' unseen actions because he has promised to do something. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. Jesus was active guiding Gallio's heart to favor the Christians because he had promised that to Paul. Here's the thing. As Christians, sometimes we forget this. And we forget that Jesus is Lord even over a Roman proconsul's heart. That he's Lord even over a secular governor or a secular city leader or even a city planner. We as members of Vine Street have a story like this in our own history. It's one of the reasons why we're still here. And you've, maybe you've heard it before. It's an amazing story. So this church was started 75 years ago about by a group of young people who wanted to plant a church in this neighborhood. There were no Protestant churches. There was a lot of unchurched people. After two and a half years of trying to make it work, of seeing pastors come and go, I mean, talking about pastors coming every six months, uh, a disappointing amount of ministry fruit, they'd bought the plot of land we're on, but they were done. They couldn't raise the money to build a church. They're discouraged. They were done. They were ready to be done. And they even had an, a, a, a buyer for this plot of land. They're going to sell it to an apartment complex, build an apartment complex, call it a day. All they had to do was apply for a change in, in their zoning status. They had to be rezoned from a religious property to, I guess, a multifamily property for an apartment complex. And so they applied, and the city rejected it. Why? I don't know. but because the Lord guides even the heart of a city planner in Louisville. And Jesus wanted a church on this property. He wanted a church in this neighborhood bearing witness to the gospel. And it didn't matter if even his own people were given up and were discouraged. Jesus was going to do what he was going to do. Even when it's in hidden, unseen ways. Again, so many times the work of Jesus is hidden, and so we miss it, or we count coincidence as coincidence, and so we miss the opportunity to be so encouraged by what Jesus is accomplishing. Beloved, I want you to know that Jesus, who, the Jesus who accomplished the same things in Acts, these things, the same Jesus is still active and working. He's still the same Jesus who is present in your life, who's made you promises, the one who made a promise to Paul and kept it, that no one's going to be able to harm you. He's the same Jesus who promised things to you. And guess what? Jesus knew everything that your week involved. He knew everything that the last month involved for you when he made his promises. That he would be with you. That he'd be at work in all things for your benefit. That he's a good shepherd. And he'll guide you and his rod and his staff will comfort. It's not like Jesus was like, oh, I'm going to promise this, but he didn't know what was going to happen. He knew everything. That's why the promises of Jesus, we can rest on them. Because he knew exactly what your life was going to look like, and he still made these promises. And just like his promise to Paul, he's good to his word. Jesus is active. The one that we see in the book of Acts is still the one who is breaking down walls, and shattering chains, and opening eyes, and redeeming sinners. 
He's still the one who works holiness and unity and humility and Christ-likeness in our midst. He's the one who sees us through adversity and hardship. He's the one who, if we surrender ourselves to him, he will use us for his kingdom and for his good purposes. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we will see that you are still the living and active risen Lord. Jesus, we confess that far too often we've attributed your work to coincidence. Far too often we've lived as if all that we can see explains everything. And yet we know that you are the sovereign Lord and not, not a, a sparrow falls to the ground without you giving it permission and that you have orchestrated and are working in all things and we may not understand what you are doing but we can glorify you for your plans are good. All we ask is that you give us the grace and the power to live lives worthy of you, to be faithful, to steward the opportunities you give us because you have saved us and you have made us your own and there is no one like you in all the world. And we who were once dead have been made alive and you have cleansed us by your own blood. And we want to please you and honor you with all our being. Jesus, help us to do that. Pray this in your beautiful and majestic name. Amen.